Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. My name is Scott Chaloner and you join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we bring together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. First and foremost on the programme today, I'm delighted to be joined by Simon Edwards. Simon is the Executive Director of Cornerstone Builders Staffordshire, a firm based in Stoke-on-Trent which provides numerous building services. He's also the founder of Walkman Ministries, a charitable organisation which provides homes, jobs and life skills to troubled individuals while teaching them about life and faith. Simon, very warm welcome to you, sir, and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's a real pleasure having you alongside us on the programme, Simon. Um, whole reason we're here, of course, is to discuss leadership and really bring that into focus. And considering yeah. that today's leaders are going through probably one of the greatest challenges of our time, I think it's fair to say, in the shape of COVID-19. I feel it would be remiss of me not to ask just to what extent that has affected you and your operations, both at Cornerstone and at uh, Walk. One of the things that happened to me at the beginning of the lockdown, I got ill and got rushed into hospital. So, you know, I had first-hand experience of what the leadership in the country were trying to protect us from and support us through. So, um, and that was my start of my COVID experiences, actually being ill and rushed into the NE. And I have to say this publicly, the NHS were absolutely amazing. And um, and and so was the doctor, um, my personal doctor that was, you know, was making sure that, that, that he leonades with the NHS to make sure that was okay as well. So, you know, hats off. And, you know, when you look at the, the leadership further up the scale down, right down to Boris Johnson right now, I think they're doing great. You know, I, I, you know who, who knew this was going to happen? Because um, we mm. didn't, didn't we? We had indications, but and there's loads of hindsight at all points, and we could have done this, we could have done that. But on whole, I think that, that the leadership of the country have done the best they can, and um, and I'm I'm quite proud um, to to say that um, about the leadership of the country. And you think people often say that hindsight's a wonderful thing, of course, and we'll look back and we think, well, maybe we could have done this better. Maybe we could have done that in a different way. But I suppose being guided by the science all the time, people are just thinking on their feet, doing what they feel is right. And to be honest as well, do you think it's actually possible to develop in leadership roles without getting one or two things wrong along the way and then embracing those learning curves and learning from those mistakes? One of the things that um, you know I, t- I teach um, the people that I walk alongside and work with is that you will learn so much more by your mistakes, and um, and but all mistakes can be corrected and we can work through, and and that's in the building company, and that's also in the charity that we um, we have the pleasure of leading. Um, you, you're not going to be perfect, you know. If you're going to think you're going to go in and, and lead stuff perfectly, um, you've set yourself up to fail. You know, we have to be teachable at all times. And uh, we have to be accessible that we're going to be teachable at all times as well to, to become that leader. I didn't start my my leadership role um, um, as the CEO of Walk and the director of Cornerstone. I, I, I became those people. You know, I, that, that's who I became. I became the CEO and I became the director by learning and, you know, gratefully being surrounded by amazing people. And thinking about this experience over the last few months, if we call it crisis management, is there anything that managing through this has taught you in your leadership position? Um, I think, and I say this because sometimes I go out and teach on stuff like this, and one of the things that I've always said, you have to have good people around you, and you have to know that sometimes that those people will help you make decisions and also be the stabiliser in crisis management. Um, everything's great in the good times, but you know how, how are we going to react in the not so good times? So that's one of the things that I, I'm always. And one of the things I've, I've very learned about about myself is it, it's okay to just say, Do you know what, I just need five minutes before I make this decision. I just need to. I just need an hour, and uh, that's okay to say that um, mm. because we don't have to be reactive. Um, and well, it's overreactive, I suppose, to to crisis management. We we just have to make sure that we go through things. And one of the things is to be quite methodical. You know, once you've set decisions, you know, go through them methodically and and just keep checking yourself and make sure that there's people around you that are checking on you and vice versa. And also know that you can sometimes change some of your decision making. That's okay. It's mm-hmm. really important that you can do that. And when you're in a leadership position during a time of difficulty like this, um, it's only natural that the people around you will look to you for inspiration and guidance. Yeah. But when you are in the leadership position, when you need a bit of inspiration yourself, where is it that you tend to look for that? 
Well, first and foremost, it's my faith. Um, you know, I'm a Christian, and um, I, 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 I became a Christian a long time ago, and um, and it was in a prison cell. And from that point, that my first point of call was my faith, and um, my faith has got me through a lot of stuff. And but it's people around me, um, it's knowing who across the city um, that is in similar roles, um, so you can go and talk to each other because. When you're in a similar role, they will understand your language and your thinking and your heartbreaking and your your stresses and your successes. Um, you know, obviously, mm. uh, my, myself and Karen uh, run, run run walk and as um, and the charity, and we have a core team of people. You know, those guys inspire me because they're the ones that turn up day in day out. And and I like to look back in history um, and and read read other people's stories. You know, and. You know, I'm a great believer that we can actually look back and have a learn um, and what other people did. Um, you know, surely in this 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 crisis that's happened in our country and across the world, they've had to look back at other things um, in history where you know we've had crises of this kind to see what happened then. Um, so that's it. And 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 and, and last and foremost, um, I like I like speaking to my daughter and um, and the boys and, and and just sometimes just hearing hearing them. And listening to what they would do, you know, I was having a bit of a, I suppose, a couple of bad days the other day, and my daughter just sent me some really nice messages and, and just saying, you know, Dad, you're a very special guy, and the things like that inspire me because it's the, it's the, it's the things that we forget when we get busy, you know, who we are, why we do it, how we're doing it, when we're going to do it, and, and first and foremost, I'm a father, and uh, first and foremost, I do have a family, and first and foremost, I have friends, and. Um, you know, being a CEO and a director doesn't define who I am. It's a part of who I am. It's part of what I do. Mm. I suppose it goes to show, doesn't it, that some of the most influential people out there can be the people in our everyday lives, such as friends, Definitely, family, colleagues, yeah. who just have even the most subtle impacts. And just yeah. thinking about sort of that family side of things, in the hectic world of running a business, let alone during a time such as this, how easy is it at the end of the day just to switch off when you need to? Um. I, I walk a lot. Um, I don't. I, I don't drink alcohol. I don't. I don't go out and, and, and live that. You know that that kind of social life anymore. I stopped it a long time ago. And one of the things I enjoy doing is walking. And, and if I go for a walk, I like the canals. Um, you know, they're, they're not too hard on my body. Uh, I, I can quite happily clock eight, ten, twelve mile up. I like the fact that you meet random people um, that you're perhaps never going to meet again, and you can have random conversations. It's it's the way. Um, I don't watch telly, but I do watch box sets. Box sets, so I'm not like a, you know, like in, into all the soaps and that. But I'll sit and watch a box set, and and that's how I kind of unwind. And um, I'm quite good at sitting in a room and doing nothing, and actually just mm. switching off, and um, that helps me. And because of the, the beginning of the COVID crisis, when I got ill, I got rushed to the hospital. Um, I didn't eat properly for I think about three weeks, and um, I lost quite a lot of weight. So. On the back of that, I, I went out and got myself a mountain bike. So at the moment, I'm clocking a lot of miles off on my mountain bike and get myself fit mm. again. Um, but yeah, it's it's the simple thing to me. You know, I, I just I read a book. You know, m- the main book I read would be the Bible, and you know, have a conversation with someone that you don't speak to all the time. Some of my best friends and my closest conversations are people that I speak to once a month. They're not people that I have everyday relationships with them, and I find that those relationships are really strong. Um, so that, that's kind of the way how I do it. I like food as well. You know, anyone who knows me knows that I like a, a good meal. Um, so I, that's another way of enjoying, enjoying myself um, outside of work. Mm. And closely linked into that previous question, um, the COVID-19 situation has really thrust the importance of mental health and well-being back into the limelight, yeah. hasn't it? Um, just how vital is mental health in leadership, both in terms of safeguarding your own, but also that of the people around you as well? Um, I, I, I think we 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 need to we need to talk about mental health more. It's it's something that we it's like a stigmatised. You know, in, in, in the charity we have thirty four men with us because that's 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 what we work. That's you know that's who we work. We work with men coming out of prison and, and out of addiction and stuff like that. And and when you have real conversations, you actually realise that all of us do struggle with bits of mental health time mm-hmm. to time, whether it be depression, whether it be you know, suicidal thinking, whether it's to be self-worth and, and all the other stuff that we go through. And, and it's like, when is the point that it tips into something that actually, you know, it actually becomes quite lifelong and, it, you know, it needs medication or it needs like a different... All these things have to start the conversation, though. 
You know, it was mm. only two weeks ago I was driving home and and I stopped at the side of the road and there was a guy at a bridge, you know, and, 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 I, and I pulled up and we got talking and, you know, he wanted to, to end his life and all the other stuff. And, and, I, and I just sat down and I said, well, just tell me your day. And, and I told him my day, it was pretty much similar. And he's like, what? I said, well, mm. we all go through this stuff. We just don't talk about this stuff. And he's like, no, I've got no one to talk to. I went, well, you know, let's talk about it now. And, and we need to spend that time where we can stop a little bit more and go, do you know what? Are you okay, mate? And if someone just goes, yeah, I'm okay, and you feel that they're not, you know, perhaps just broach that conversation a little bit more. Mm. But we also have to understand that if people are reaching out to us and you, you don't engage as well, it can be quite hard to um, – but my personal opinion, I think men do need to – and talk about mental health stuff a lot more, and it needs to not be stigmatised. Um, I've got a lot of men around me um, between the two organisations and all the staff. There's there's probably about eighty people altogether, and um, and you know some of the, some of our teams struggle with mental health, and, and some of our men um, struggle with mental health. One thing we do is we don't we don't put it in a box. Mm. We don't stigmatise it because if that's your reality, that that's a reality that we're going to walk out together, and um, you know and some of the most inspiring people I've ever met um, have issues of things like mental health and, and self-worth. It's, I struggle. I struggle all the time. You know, I, sometimes I feel the most loneliest person in the world. And, and when you talk to people that do the kind of leadership roles that I do, they, they have the same kind of thinking. And, and that's an oxymoron because sometimes you need that thinking to be able to do your job, that it's okay to be lonely and on yourself in these, mm. these crisis moments. But the flip side of that, if you don't manage that properly, it can actually take you down rabbit holes that you don't need to go down with your thinking and stuff like that. Mm, completely understand where you're coming from, from that point of view there, uh, Simon. And having been someone that's held on to what's really important as well as building up a business and a charitable organisation, yeah. if you were to give some advice to somebody who was looking to set up their own business or maybe step into a leadership role in an organisation for the year uh, the first time, what advice would you give them to really get them on the road to success and well-being? Um, well, this sort of stuff, I do go and talk to people about, um, especially when I go into the universities and that and, and have conversations. And, and, and one of the first thing I always say is, why do you want to do it? And, um, you know, because there's different kinds of leaders. You've got a primary leader, which is some of what I do, you know, it's, you, and then you've got like a leadership team and then you've got these silo leaders and all these different kinds of, and it's like, why do you want to actually do it? Because it doesn't matter what part of leadership you do. And the first part of leadership is being an example to others. Mm. It's getting yourself right, you know, doing the small things. And if you're going to do the small things like get out of bed in the morning and make your bed and make yourself a brew and, and brush your teeth and, and make sure that you're, you know, you're smiling wife, all your self-worth stuff, all your, you know, the, the self-parenting stuff. If you can do those little things, the big things come a lot more easier. So I always ask people, why are you going to do it? You know, what's this passion in your heart? And are you looking after you first? Because if you can't look after you, you're actually no good to anyone. It's a really important thing that you've got to look after you. And I, I teach people, you know, to be selfish in a way. And it's the word that I use to emphasize. You have to make sure that you're okay, because if you're okay, you can then help other people to be okay. So it's the why, really, and then the how you're going to do it. And and and. I'm very honest and, and quite brutal when I talk to people and um, and I get asked to speak places and, and I talk about the impact of what leadership really is because you're not going to be liked all the time. If you think you're going to be a leader and you're going to, you're going to please everybody, well, you, you need to give that up because a leader is a person that has to make the right decision and sometimes decisions impact people in a very positive and a very negative way. But that decision has to fall on what you think and what you're doing and what you're going to say and how you're going to delegate and implement it out you're not going to keep everyone happy by that i can tell you that much um, just by my own experience um one of the other things is is i like and we've mentioned before it's okay to make mistakes you're not going to get it perfect monday is not the full week you've got another six days to go and it's okay to get up and try again tomorrow um one thing i always share with people and i always say this that you know your plan the plan that you've got you know that it might not take two years. Mm. It might actually take three. And it's okay. You know, if I was going to do everything again, what we've just spent the last seven years building, you know, and uh, I would probably be able to do it in four, but I can only do that by our experience now and, and, and looking back because you know what not to do. And, and that's, the, that's 
that's something that I'm, I'm really like wanting to share with people that sometimes things will take a little bit longer. Um, the other thing, if you don't need to reinvent the wheel, don't. You know, if something works and you can go to another organization or to another leader and you can ask them, you know, people come to me and ask me my advice all the time and they go, well, why do you think that? I said, because in my opinion, in our experience, it hasn't worked. And um, and then you share that. There's nothing wrong with sharing that. And and that's the last thing, you know, once you've learned something, share it. It's really important that you share it. You know, this, this, this thing called life, this thing called wisdom and experience and all that we need to let go of that we shouldn't be holding on to that you know every every year we have a new wave of men coming through and we we work out who's going to be the leaders who's going to be the people that are going to follow and and all the other stuff and we, and we teach them the, the stuff that we know and and we let go of it and we we raise them up because they have to be the next generation of leaders at all times coming through why because you know life is a long time and it's not just for today Exactly right. And just thinking about the uh, the short term future, just before we do wrap things up on the programme today, Simon, and um, we know mm. we, over the next uh, few months, we're going to have to adjust to a new way of living and working as we eventually shrug off the shackles of this uh, pandemic situation, yeah. hopefully. But what is next for you for Cornerstone and for Walk during this time? And what are you really hoping to achieve? Well, Walk um, has just, just, just been part of a, a wider um, group of charities in the city that um, um, uh, have won the five-year contract for the homelessness in the city. So we're going to get busy doing that. Um, and Cornerstone, um, my heart in Cornerstone is that we're going to build, um, which we have been doing already and we are doing now, is that we're going to build um, good quality accommodation for people that are going to come out of the prisons and out of, the, out of addiction and off the streets of Stoke-on-Trent. Um, because that, I think the first thing that we should be doing is making sure that someone's home um, is, 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 is actually good so they can live there and live in a nice place. And the reason being is, is because you shouldn't be defined by your past all the time. You know, if someone actually wants to change their life, surely we should get alongside them. So I think accommodation is something massive that we're, we're not only doing now that we're going to be doing over the next couple of years. As I speak to you, I'm, I'm sitting in a police station compound because uh, we're, we're about to buy a police station um, and the irony of it that, you know, we, we, I'm an ex-offender myself and, you know, I work with ex-offenders and we're about to buy a police station and turn it into luxury accommodation for people that are coming out of prison and off the streets of Stoke-on-Trent to support them. Um, and that's the great thing about leadership. You get to do stuff like this that have a, have a, have a great story. Um, so, yeah, it's the story of what we do and it's why we're going to do it. We're going to keep on doing it. And and you know what? We're going to... Um, my faith is just just keep thanking God um, that I get out of bed each day and um, I have life in my heart and I have, have, have a good thinking mind that I can keep doing. And I'm surrounded by amazing people, you know, Karen and myself who lead Walk, um, you know, and Steve Daly and, and Tony, they're amazing people. And, um, and a, a construction firm, you know, Pete and, and a few of the guys that, that have been with me a long time, they're just amazing people. Um, so... For me, me, nothing's going to change except for the journey just keeps going on. And um, and every year we look back and like, wow, did we do that last year? And look what we're going to be doing this year. Be excited, man. It's, it's an exciting time to be a leader. It is, you know, mm. we, we are having to get used to a different way of doing things. And uh, and you know what? Some of it's actually good. <laughs> it's, uh, some of it's good when you're in a, in a place and you're not all cramped up at the till and all that sort of stuff. And some of this stuff's going to relax, isn't it? When it relaxes, mm. you know, uh, things will get a little bit. Um, I'm excited. I'm excited for the UK as a country. You know, I'm excited to, you know, I, I look around my own city and I'm excited to see some of the stuff that's coming through. Um, I'm excited for the entrepreneurial person. You know, that's what we do. We're very entrepreneurial people ourselves. I'm excited that, you know, all the questions and the, the, the solutions that are out there, it's not everything down to central and local government. Some of this is down to you. You know, if you have the, the, the authority and the finances and the, the structure of networks to go out and do something to help people and support people that may or may not be less fortunate than yourself, why would you not do that anyway? What Do we expect the government to pay for all that all the time? I think we need to give a little bit of a head wobble, really, if we're going to think that way. Um, but I congratulate um, the UK government, Brexit and COVID and all the other stuff that's going on in this last year and a half, two years. Can't have been easy. And um, I don't always agree with their policies. I don't always agree with what they say. Um, but I do believe for a time like right now, they're doing okay. 
Certainly is um, interesting uh, times ahead and let's hope there'll be some amazing news to share uh, with those plans as they come to fruition, Simon. And in fact, you know, um, I've got to say, given how enlightening it's been having you joining us, I think it'd be fantastic in a few months' time to welcome you back onto the show just to see how it's all coming along. Definitely, yeah. That'd be great. Definitely. And you keep doing what you're doing because it's really important that people's voices are heard and um, and the stories of what are going on are heard. And, and, and that's, you know, that, that's important that we meant to share this stuff. The good news is really important, you know that. Mm. We get bogged down with so much bad news, man. And if we could just share a bit more good news and, and make the place a little bit better by sharing that good news, I believe that the world can be a better place every day. Mm. And that's certainly what the Leaders' Council will be looking to do um, as it furthers its uh, reach um, as well. Simon, I've got to say, it's been a real, real pleasure having you joining us on the uh, the programme. And most importantly as well, until we do touch base in future, do continue to take care and stay safe with all still going on. Yourself, take care, mate. God bless. Bye-bye. God bless Simon. That was Simon Edwards speaking. And coming up next on today's programme, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary and Incumbent Leaders Council Chairman, Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords and enjoyed a distinguished political career, holding various senior positions in Tony Blair's Cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the Lords back in August 2015. I hope you all enjoy listening listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with Lord Blunkett himself and all of that is of course coming up next. Lord Blunkett welcome. Thank you very much it's very good to be with you. Um, Well of course uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19 which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected mm-hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for a British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative, they're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and product productivity and, and the production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? 
I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, um, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I, I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We, we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in... Uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a, in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's, it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the, the UK and, um, and the US, and to some extent uh, the Scandinavian countries, have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible, proportional 
balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we, we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That, that's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London. But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? 
Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. This is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Shut um, these kind of things you, you can look at. But you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for the for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened. Because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm -hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope and without uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way i think now aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy not just national economy but also the world economy um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to, to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges. And they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives, for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm -hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect, where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently, uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond 
Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a a great leader of the opposition, more importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, It was true of us from 97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways... Uh, supportable opposition as well as a government that we clearly want to do well because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty. And we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role. And that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One, which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media which he has, uh, Sakir Starmer, set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, Mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority 
even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn mm -hmm. from each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage, have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.